Welcome to this podcast episode of Narcissists in Divorce, The Narcissist Trap. I'm Dr. Supriya McKenna. I'm a former family doctor, but my life's true work is working with people who have fallen prey to narcissistic relationships of any kind. But I'm particularly busy in the area of divorce. Over the last few years, I've been very proud to become an Amazon best-selling author on the subject of narcissism, and my brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out right now on Amazon. That's the first book in the Narcissists in Divorce series, and the follow-on to that will be out in the spring, and that's called Narcissists in Divorce, From Leaving to Liberty. And please do note that although I use the word divorce, these books are equally applicable to anyone leaving a serious intimate relationship with a narcissist, whether they are married or not. I also have a book out called The Narcissist Trap, The Mind-Bending Pull of the Great Pretenders. And that book might be useful in helping the people around you who are supporting you to understand more about what happened to you and about narcissism generally. I'm also the co-author with British divorce lawyer Karen Walker of Narcissism and Family Law, a practitioner's guide. And between us, Karen and I have trained thousands of family law professionals in narcissistic personality disorder, including judges, lawyers, mediators and social workers. For further narcissism resources from me, please do visit thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com. And that web address has the doctor fully spelt out. Well, today, Karen and I are really delighted to be able to welcome Dr. Craig Malkin to the podcast. Craig is a lecturer in psychology for Harvard Medical School, and he's in private practice as a licensed psychologist. He has over two decades of experience in helping couples, individuals, and families. He's the author of the excellent book, Rethinking Narcissism. His research has been published in peer-reviewed journals, And he has a blog on psychologytoday.com called Romance Redux. And he's also a frequent contributor to the Huffington Post. Dr. Malkin's advice and insights are regularly featured in major magazines and newspapers, as well as in TV and radio shows. Craig also has a popular YouTube channel specifically dealing with narcissism. And he was a contributing author to the 2017 New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. So thank you so much for joining us, Craig. Thanks for having me. Your book, Rethinking Narcissism, describes the spectrum of narcissism. And I think that's a really important concept for people to understand. I think it's really helpful for people to understand. I'm wondering if you could explain that to us. My way of looking at the spectrum is a little different from others because most people start the spectrum at bad uh, and then they go up to even worse, and that's kind of it. Yes, bad all the way up to Donald Trump. Yes. And, exactly. And they don't include a notion of health, and then there's other spectrum models that are focused on just one type of narcissism. So I wanted to bring all those together. So that's why I organized it based integrating all the research around this idea that it's really the core of it is what's called self-enhancement or the drive to feel special mm-hmm exceptional, unique, to stand out in some way from the other 8 billion people on the planet, either in positive ways or negative ways. And that that way you can include different forms of narcissism, which maybe we can get into. But I want to think of the spectrum from 0 to 10. Mm -hmm. 
where at zero, you have people who have no narcissism at all. They fail to self-enhance. At five, you have people who have a healthy amount of narcissism. And then at five through 10, it goes higher and higher. By the time you reach 10, now that we're disordered narcissism, where people are so driven to feel special in whatever way they do, they lie, steal, cheat, do whatever it takes in order to maintain that feeling. And that's how I view the spectrum. And then you can see different types along it. Mm -hmm. Most people are aware of what I call the narcissist we all know and loathe, the loud, chest-thumping, braggart, extroverted narcissist. We think of reality TV types. Yeah, so we call that the exhibitionist narcissist. Everybody has Mm -hmm. a slightly different classification, overt, grandiose, extroverted. Exhibitionist, grandiose, overt, yes, all of those. So that's really about organized around being special or exceptional because I'm the smartest person in the room. I'm the most attractive. I have the most money. I mean, you name it, all those positive qualities. That's the more extroverted. I prefer extroverted because it correlates most strongly with extroversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's that's one version of feeling special. But then there are people who feel special, vulnerable, uh, introverted, covert narcissists, hypersensitive narcissists. Again, all names for the same thing. They tend to be introverted. They don't feel special for by virtue of positive qualities. They feel specially misunderstood like the most misunderstood person in the room or the ugliest no one has suffered as much as they have mm-hmm. so the, the nice thing about viewing the spectrum in this way is it captures all the versions of narcissism yes yes we also refer to those as the closet narcissists after um, masterson, masterson. Yep. yep yeah i i, I was just gonna kind of turn turn it back to um Craig, your idea of the concept of healthy narcissism, because I think, you know, whenever Supriya and I um, do a presentation, we always, first of all, ask the audience to put their hand up if they feel a little bit special. And of course, nobody does or everybody looks nervously around the room. Um, But then Supriya talks about the fact that that, uh, being a little bit special is very good for you. And so there must be an element of narcissism within um, an individual, which, which actually is beneficial Plenty of research on that. It's, you know, it really is empirical fact. Most people react to the notion or or the phrase healthy narcissism. I've had trouble catching up to that because when I was a clinical baby, I'll say when I was just growing up as a clinician, nobody really, none of us who helped people really even thought twice about the term because it was, we'd been introduced in the theory and we knew all about the research, but healthy narcissism we want to think of the spectrum again as the drive to feel special and that narcissism is a trait that we know exists to some extent in all of us cross culturally to a greater or lesser lesser degree in various forms and you can measure it on any number of measures and we can also capture what's called healthy narcissism so, and if you go back to the spectrums of zero to ten remember healthy narcissism is in the center it's around mm-hmm. five all it is It is not self-esteem. It is not self-confidence. It is a slightly overly positive, unrealistically so, an overly positive view of self, feeling moderately special. And it turns out that people who in self-report on our measure, which we just call healthy narcissism, who agree with statements like, I like to dream big um, uh, and I persist in the face of failure, 
and there are any, again, other measures of it. There's one called autonomous narcissism. There's leadership authority on the narcissistic personality inventory. The people who score high in those, it only correlates with positive uh, relationship experience and positive outcomes, only positive stuff. Um, and mm-hmm. people around the world who feel a little bit special, uh, who have slightly rose-colored glasses on self-world and future, again, not realistic, but a little bit tinted, um, are happy and healthy. They're able to give and receive in relationships. And according to some studies, they might even live longer because of the health benefits and the way it affects people's patterns of self-care and other trends. So mm-hmm. we do need it a, a little bit, whatever you want to call it. I've often suggested that the, the narcissism spectrum is really a spectrum of self-enhancement. Um, so in, we have moderately self-enhancing people who aren't so blind that they can't see reality when it's held to them. Just a side note on that, what's interesting is there's flexibility with healthy narcissism too. People who are sco- score high in these measures, if you put them in a situation where they get objective feedback on how they're doing on something, uh-huh. even if in the even 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 if before that feedback by an objective judge they had rated themselves in this slightly inflated way. Oh, I'm, you know, I'm a great cook or, Oh, I'm a super fast runner. I don't know what they would say, but I'm just making it up. But then the judge judges them and says, Hey, you know, you're okay. I mean, I put you around here. You're not that great. They'll accept that and adjust their view down. Yeah. That's what's fascinating about it. It's flexible. Mm -hmm. It's protective, but they'll put it aside if it's going to get in the way or it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you do the same thing with someone who scores high on narcissism, who's extremely narcissistic, they'll attack the judge. This has been done. These studies have been done. They will attack the judge and they'll say this test is stupid. So it's a very different pattern. So we also know that people who lack any of that self-enhancement, who fail to self-enhance, uh, don't look happy and they don't look healthy on self-report measures. They don't report feeling good either. They're often anxious and depressed. These are the people from zero to four, mm-hmm. zero to three, I should say, on the spectrum that I call echoists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's after the myth of narcissism and echo, isn't it? And I, I love that term, actually. Yeah. But I have wondered, what is the difference between a codependent and an echoist? I get that question all the time. It's so, it's such a good one. I will say I don't use the term codependent and most of the clinicians around me don't either just because I'm more in, involved in attachment research and helping people. This is how I help people who are narcissistic as I help them build the capacity to develop attachment security. And maybe we can talk about that. And that's all about effective dependency. That's what it's called. It's all about fostering healthy dependency a lot of times the the way codependency is talked about i worry that it pathologizes dependency i know it doesn't have to and it also seems to mean a lot of things but the one main description that i think captures codependency is this is a relationship where people support each other in illness rather than health right and in particular one person supports another in keeping the relationship going, it's all wrapped up in, in maintaining the, the the less healthy patterns. Now, 
in echoism, the core feature, as I defined it, as I refined it as a measure and I refined the idea of what echoism is, what came out again and again is it's really a fear of seeming narcissistic in any way, a fear of standing out, of being a burden. They agree with, echoists agree with statements like, I'm afraid of becoming a burden. And when people ask my preferences, I'm often at a loss. Uh, they, the less room I take up, the better is really their stance. And when you think about that, if that's your organizing fear, sometimes you're going to opt out of a relationship entirely. Yes. Uh, you're not going to be a consummate caretaker. And this does happen. I've worked with people who struggle with echoism where they have limited relationships because they're so concerned about the possibility of having too much impact on somebody else or their or their or expressing their needs that they're uncomfortable with that they'll actively distance from relationships and if people with this brand of echoism if you try to take care of them or give them things they're like oh stop fussing over me i'm not a child they'll get angry this is very different from a notion of codependency although it could overlap because the because of that organizing principle of I just don't want to seem narcissistic with the codependency as well, sort of not not wanting to have needs, not needing to have needs, or not yes. wanting to be seen to have needs. Kind of there's a sort of overlap there as well. Yes, it's not wanting to admit to having needs, isn't it? Which is as kind of trying to say I'm okay when really they're not. Not having needs actually pushes them to being extremely needy in a in a sort of roundabout sort of way absolutely think about what's the easiest way to get rid of a need is to have it met right away exactly right right so if my anxiety is if i have anxiety attached to a need it's going to turn that into neediness it's when we're comfortable owning and are expressing our needs that we're much less likely to have those flare-ups where we feel in a panic or anxious if something doesn't happen yeah Thinking about some of the echoists that I've come across, because they're kind of on the, the opposite end of the spectrum to narcissists, there is that polar opposite type of attraction. You know, a lot of them find it very difficult to accept compliments. They sort of balk at compliments. They can't bear them. And they have this really strong kind of aversion to feeling special. Absolutely. Yes. Because in the past, very often, this isn't for everybody who is echoistic, but, and I want to say again, just to clarify that this is not a diagnosis. Uh Again, we're talking about traits, survival strategies. These are changeable patterns if people want to change them. Even with narcissism, I I help people with narcissistic personality disorder who come to me. That is, So these are are changeable patterns. They aren't fixed unless we allow them to stay fixed. But that's on us to change. But with with echoists, they often have an experience in the past growing up where they might have had an extremely narcissistic parent. Mm -hmm who needed to take up all the room, who had to be the most important in the room or the the loudest, had to be the most recognized, even competed with their kids. This is going to push a sensitive kid and most echoists, the way they score on self-report, they appear to be more temperamentally sensitive, to feel things more intense, uh, yeah. intensely. There's an overlap with highly sensitive person. For people who don't know that term, it's exactly what it sounds like. I mean, these are some people who are kind of wired when they come into the world to uh, feel, to see the world in bright and dark colors, mm-hmm. to feel intensely what they feel, uh, to experience their sensitivities acutely, and they can be very gifted and very empathic and creative. 
as well. There's some overlap with echoes. I mean, you take a kid with that kind of sensitive temperament, and then you put them with a parent who doesn't allow them any breathing room, mm-hmm. uh, any space whatsoever. And now they're going to be afraid of even the slightest impulse mm-hmm. to ask for some special attention. Mm-hmm. In other words, to take up some room. Mm-hmm. It will be laced with a sense of danger. Mm-hmm. So yeah, echoists are often very fearful of compliments, yeah. special attention, because there's because there's learned anxiety associated with it. it, it uh, it's a harbinger at the end of relationships if they ask for too much. Yeah. If you're wondering whether your partner really is a narcissist, please do check out my online course, Is My Partner a Narcissist? Knowing for Sure. And if you want to understand narcissistic behaviours, you may be interested in my Demystifying the Narcissist online course. Both are available on drsapria.com. They feel very undeserving, don't they? Often. Yeah. You mentioned empathy there and, you know, and, and highly sensitive people and, and all of that. And a lot of people use that term empath. But I think there are very <laughs> people who are very empathic. But there's a kind of overlap there as well, I think, with the, the highly sensitive person and the, the echoist and the empath possibly as well down that end of the spectrum. There is definitely just because there's that overlap in the highly sensitive person research too. And then we found this overlap in looking at just what happens in these patterns when people have echoism and many echoists can be genuinely caring, empathic people. And if anything, it it becomes their leading quality. And just like any adaptive behavior or expression or any of the best parts of ourselves, Um, They can be employed by us, we ourselves, either adaptively or defensively, that is protectively. So one of the traps that people who are really empathic uh, echoists fall into is that any time they run up, again, because of learned danger too, any time they run up against their own disappointment or anger or sense that somebody is failing them, they immediately shift to, but ah, they're having a hard time. Um, they've, 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 they've suffered as children having a hard time at work. So they forgive, don't they? They forgive and they forgive and they forgive and they believe that love mm. conquers all. And if only I can love you more, if only I could give you more. And they're rescuers as well, aren't they? I think this type. Oh, yes. They have had to, historically, they've had to ward off, defend against, cordon off, put away feelings of anger. Mm-hmm. that's what's missing when i work with somebody who struggles with patterns of echoism one of the things i come back to again and again is let's get you angry really yeah oh yes adaptive anger anger is wired into us it's a healthy primary feeling it helps us put us in touch with our sense of what's right and true and our sense of clarity and confidence and agency so it helps us set boundaries so when we give up anger, this is not about rage or attacking people. It's about just knowing that what's happening to me is not okay. 
damn it. It's just not right. Whether you act on it or say it to somebody or not, it's knowing it internally. And people who struggle with these patterns have been made to feel like that itself is dangerous. And, and that easily then slips into just giving that anger up in favor of an empathic perspective. It's so interesting that you say that. I'm thinking about clients that I see who've been in narcissistic relationships. I mean, I only see people who've been in narcissistic relationships. And so often they'll apologize, you know, oh, I sound really angry. I'm, I'm really sorry, yeah. you know. And I sort of say to them, you know, you have the right uh, to feel anger yeah. and you should, you know, you really you need to turn towards that anger and actually yeah. feel it um, because you have the right to feel that. Because people yes. will say to them, oh, you know, you're, you're very angry and you're very bitter. You need to lose that. That's not a, it's not a helpful emotion. You know, misguided people will say that. So mm-hmm. damaging. Yeah. So damaging. So damaging. No, I'm like, tell me more about your anger. Where do you feel it in your body? Yeah. What do you want to do with that anger? Oh, you want to punch? Let's see you punch. <laughs> That's, I, I, I want to get yeah. active. Yeah, it's so important, is it? Because you can't process it unless you turn towards it and actually feel it. You can't kind of process it and then put it in the basement of, of, of where right. these feelings need to go. That's right. That's right. You can't, if you want to get to a healthy use of anger, sometimes you have to go through rage. Yeah. You know, as a clinician, I have to be comfortable with and help people with feelings of rage. And once they move through that and they're in, they feel viscerally that it's safe to just, it's just a feeling to just experience it fully mm. and to completion, mm. they get to a different place. They're angry and they know what to do with the anger. Mm-hmm. And, and I think if you keep sort of turning away from it, it just keeps coming back, doesn't it? And bitterness keeps coming back. Bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. But it just keeps coming back and it can come up for years unless you actually feel it and let yourself really feel how you uh, feel. Excellent. Uh, excellent point. Yes, it, it's... When if you let yourself feel it, it then becomes that more primary adaptive uh, feeling of of anger, and that's finite. All healthy feelings come in waves, yeah. and they're finite. When it goes on and on and on, it's an interrupted feeling, or it's mixed with panic or fear, um, and it's not yeah. the, just the feeling. Like even that unregulated rage that keeps coming back or that bitterness that's not just anger that's anger mixed with helplessness and fear and all kinds of things i'm reminded of the buddhist phrase pain is inevitable yes suffering is optional yeah suffering is optional that's a good one yeah yeah should we turn to social media? I really think that whilst the internet and social media has a lot of benefits it really does um bring a lot of bad things as well um, a separate topic is what it does for, for young people and their need to project an, an external persona. But for narcissistic people, it, it provides such an opportunity to um, to be whatever they want to be to a, a very wide number of people. And um, I was really surprised. I was talking to my um, my daughter who said to me, you know, people don't meet anymore. Um, by talking in a bar or all the ways that they did when I was young. You, you, know, you talk to people online and, and you message for a long time before you would even think about meeting someone. Well, I just think that you know, the messages are terribly contrived and can be written and, and uh, amended and rewritten and, and thought about before they are sent. And, and very, very manipulative. Um, and I just wonder if you think, Craig, that social media 
um, is is causing people to become more narcissistic who might otherwise not be, but encounter this this weird online need to pre- pre- project a persona that may not be real, um, and and that that could be causing narcissism to increase. It's possible. We don't have any clear evidence of, of, of that, and I can even talk about one study mm. that shows how it might happen. So it's it's possible. So right. very early on in our forays into social media and understanding of some clever researchers did a study where they wanted to look at this question and they measured people's state narcissism. Basically, they just took a narcissistic personality disorder, in, uh, excuse me, narcissistic personality inventory and converted into a state measure where they asked them how, if, if they were currently feeling this or it was tied to the present. Uh, and they used it and they measured it over time. And then they put them in these three random conditions. Mm-hmm. And in one condition, they had them spend about 15 minutes navigating their college campus on Google Earth. In another, they had them spend 15 minutes on MySpace, which I don't even think exists anymore. But it was notorious for exhibitionism. People would get on there and post pictures of them being scan- themselves being scantily clad, and they would boast and they would pr- self present. Uh, and and then in the third uh, in the third category, they had people spend fifteen minutes on Facebook, and this was at a time when Facebook really was about just catching up with friends. Uh, it, it was not quite what it is today. And then they looked at the the effects, and nothing really changed, you know, before and after playing on Google Earth in in that group. Uh, but in the MySpace group, there was an increase in narcissism between before they were on MySpace and then after they were on MySpace, their narcissism scores went up. Not a lot, but... It, and this is just after 15 minutes. Yeah, it's like 15 minutes, as I recall. It was a short period of time. So I think what that points to is it is possible. We don't know how long it can last and if it's enduring change or influence. And I have reason to believe it. it it's not always going to be, and I'll say something about that in a moment. Um, but, you know, there it does point to the fact that the way we use social media can promote narcissistic traits in us or diminish them. Because the other finding they had was that the people who were on Facebook, as opposed to MySpace, their narcissism didn't go up. Their self-esteem went up. So what, what it demonstrated is if you're out there using social media in a way where you're sharing, where you're being open, in real relationships, uh, talking to other people in clear, emotionally connected ways. It's helpful. It helps us feel better. I think that's why it it increased self-esteem, but not narcissism. If you are on social media, image churning, tagging yourself, posting all kinds of images of yourself, you know, just to call attention to you, that's not a healthy way of relating, and it actually just enhances narcissistic traits. And according to that one study, it might even, it might even have increased it. Uh, I, there's a caveat to this, or a, a way we should qualify it. 
not only does it matter how we use health social media and there are going to be healthier and unhealthier ways to use it. And we have to be mindful of that. Share, don't compare is my bumper sticker Mm -hmm. for that. Share, don't compare. Mm -hmm. If we're being open and and connected in those ways, it's only going to help us. But also, you know, that's just extending attachment security. Attachment security is if we're sad, scared, blue, Mm -hmm. lonely, if we have vulnerable feelings, we trust that there's one person or special people we can Mm -hmm. turn to uh, for mutual care and connection, that they will be there for us when push comes to shove. That's what attachment security is. If we have that, that appears to protect us against pathological, developing pathological narcissism. We already know that people with narcissistic personality disorder or people who are extremely narcissistic are insecurely attached. So if, if you start out insecurely attached, it's highly unlikely that even using social media in some bad ways is going to increase your narcissism in any significant or important manner. But if you already struggle with attachment security, maybe it could. I mean, it can be for those people. It's almost like a sort of extension of their outward persona, you know, that sort of false persona, like that grandiosity, that defence that they put up to the outside world, the needing to feel special, that that sort of defence. It's, it's almost just an extension of that, isn't it? Because they can get likes and, you know, oh, yeah. comments. And it, it's yeah. a sort of just the special attention. attention. Yeah. 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 It, it, you can become dependent on mm. or addicted to the special attention of social media. And that, by definition, is narcissism. And extreme narcissism mm. is being so dependent or addicted on the experience of feeling special, you know, that you exploit and you're entitled and you're empathy impaired. Mm. But it all stems from that core preoccupation. So, to the extent that we're using social media in a way that uh, helps us just maintain that feeling of I'm getting special attention and likes and I'm important and I'm important compared to other people. It's not going to be healthy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, I may have mentioned this already at some point on, on this uh, podcast series, but um, during lockdown, I saw some really interesting behaviors um, particularly in older people. So older people that hadn't been on Instagram before we had very serious lockdowns here in, in this country. We weren't able to, to see anybody at all. It really was very, very much the, the country shut down. And of course, these people, these narcissists, couldn't get not their normal fix of narcissistic supply. And so they went onto Instagram and very quickly, even on the older generation, posting pictures of themselves scantily clad or whatever, and they built up a, a massive following very quickly, um, hundreds of thousands of followers and loads and loads of comments every day. And it actually did what they needed. It gave them that replacement narcissistic supply. It was so interesting to watch. Fascinating. Mm. So those were the exhibitionist narcissists. But then I also observed in um, uh, some closet narcissists that, and again, in the older generation, that they would do it in much more covert ways. Um, So they would sort of... um, they would post, uh, you know, a single glass of wine and just say, oh, I'm on my own. But they'd stage it, so beautifully staged. I'm on my own tonight, just thinking about, you know, whatever. And just it was really, really clever the way they do. They'd have them doing something on their own. It was all about, you know, garnering that kind of attention yeah. but in covert ways. So I, I thought that was very interesting to watch that. Yeah, those are great examples. Thanks. My brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out now. For more information and online courses about narcissism, please do check out my websites, 
thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com.